This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. If you're thinking, I should go for a run today, but it looks like it could rain... Sierra says, save on epic rain jackets. If you're also thinking, but I can't go out in these beat-up old running shoes, Sierra says, save on top brand running shoes. And if you're still thinking, but I'm also busy performing brain surgery, well, then we say, you really should have led with that. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! Hi, Tom Kerridge here on the BBC Good Food Podcast. This week I'm speaking to great friend and chef Ayo Adeyemi to talk about his favourite dish, jollof rice. Born in the UK and of Nigerian descent, Ayo had an interest in cooking from an early age, receiving his culinary arts management degree from Birmingham University. And then in September 2022, Ayo joined London's West African-inspired restaurant, Akoko, as executive chef. Ayo... Hello, mate. Welcome. Tell us how you got into cooking and how we sat here in this room now talking about it. Hello there, Tom. Thank you for having me here. And um, Yeah, so how I got into cooking, I've been uh, an eager and passionate chef, a cook from a very young age, uh, enjoying cooking at home with my family. My mum taught me a lot about uh, different Nigerian flavours in the kitchen and creating cultural key dishes such as my favourite dish, jollof rice. I was also uh, incredibly inspired by watching some of my favorite chef idols on television, even including yourself, Tom, as Thanks, well. Mate. And uh, seeing how you were able to create these uh, global hospitality empires. So you mentioned your mum there and understanding that food, but you grew up in, in Dorset. I did, yeah. Right on the south coast, a little town called Poole. Yeah, so Poole, Dorset. Yeah. Nigerian descent. And how was it sat there amongst fish and chips on the, on the in a seaside town <laughs> into the Nigerian food that you were eating? Well, I think with my family, uh, we're very much on eating a lot of home-cooked meals. So it wasn't really the case of have, being around British flavours and, and those kind of dishes. You know, we tried to 
eat a lot of home cooked food. My mum was very passionate about that and uh, really encouraged us to eat more at home than um, than takeaway meals, you know, ready meals, that kind of thing. So I think that was kind of you know just forced into me uh, straight away. So would you say she was hugely influential in the way that you cook now, or your understanding of hospitality, or trying to mm. being part of a family and sitting down and eating? Is that been something that's been? I mean, I suppose the foundation of the way that you look at your outlook into food now. Yeah, I would say so, definitely. I mean, not so much in terms of getting into hospitality. I think in an ideal world, they'd rather be me become a doctor, a lawyer, or an accountant. <laughs> they don't really look at hospitality as kind of a viable career. They but, must do now. Though. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You know, after seeing, you know, you know what I've been able to achieve in my career and being able to travel around the world and, you know, learn so many different styles of cuisine and techniques. Um, yeah, definitely. They are very proud. But I mean, you know, back then it was just more about eating, you know, good homely cooked food for, you know, for health reasons and obviously just for consciousness as well and and really to um, understand the history and background of where I grew up because obviously I was born and raised in uh, the UK you know grew up in British schools system and everything you know my knowledge when it comes to uh, Nigerian uh, culture is very limited you know unfortunately I can't even speak my parents dialect tongue which is you know an ongoing process I can pick a few words or phrases here and there but um, you know so I think the best way to really kind of understand that culture is is through through the food through the flavours and through the cooking techniques as well It's amazing how food can transpire around the world and, and, and how important it is for people's heart and their foundation of wherever they're at we've talked about it on this podcast a number of times of where people their heritage of where it comes from and how food transcends that across I mean it's global everyone yes. eats and everyone has and, and everyone's super proud of the food and, and I suppose their relationship to it and where they come from their terroir like the French talks about it the earth the land and how that influences their dishes and their outlook onto life but then how did that then transcend from understanding Nigerian cuisine but growing up in, in Dorset in a British schooling system to then going do you know what I want to get into hospitality. I want to be a chef. I want to learn how to do this. How, how, what was that pivotal moment that made you move into that area? Well, I think for me, it was more the case of like, um, you know, I just love food. I love to cook. And I was like, how can I, you know, eat all the time yeah, yeah? I mean, and what's the, better way to do it than the, actually to work in hospitality the best chefs are eaters which is eaters exactly yeah. so I think um, at first you know you know to talk about people that inspired me the likes of you know Gordon Ramsay and seeing you know him cooking you know on TV and you know these kind of amazing style dishes you know three Michelin star level dishes and seeing you know uh, how his profile was on TV and you know the multiple business businesses he had around the world I was like you know, cooking isn't just about being, a, you know, cooking, you know, like there's more to it than that. It's about running a business. It's about, you know, you can build an empire through that. And then, you know, when I was able to, you know, seek out doing culinary arts as a degree, I, that's where I thought, you know what, this is something I can really pursue for my future. Did that help you sell it to the parents that you're going for a degree and it's more about the business rather than just cooking in absolutely, a kitchen? Absolutely, absolutely. So um, there was a few fibs told along the way. So the, obviously you you then went to study uh, uh, culinary arts yeah, and, and your degree in, in Birmingham. In Birmingham, yeah, yeah qualified and yeah. then where did you go and then from there um you know during that time i was you know working in a lot of kitchens in birmingham and and abroad as well you know i really 
um, use the opportunity to kind of travel and see the world. You know, I think uh, the moment that I got out of pool, I realized that, you know, there's more to life than just uh, fish and ships in the seaside, you know, and, um, you know, I'm an avid traveler. So, you know, after um, I did graduated, I got the opportunity to work under, again, another one of my chef mentors, uh, Chef Sharita Gopathathan at um, the Taj uh, Camps and Place restaurant in San Francisco which at the time was carrying Michelin star. And that's where I really got to experience proper fine dining uh, Michelin uh, kitchen experience. And then through there, you know, I lined a few stages in, in San Francisco, including Atelier Crenn. I was there um, and really got a chance to kind of, again, immerse myself and learn, uh, the, you know, that style of food. and that. Um, you've properly thrown yourself in at the deep end. You've gone Absolutely. from, you know, you've left, you've left Dorset, you've gone to Birmingham and you've studied, you've got your degree. And then you've gone and not just gone and worked in a, a Michelin style restaurant in Birmingham or mm. one in the Midlands or one back down in the Southwest, you've gone, no, you know, I'm going to go off to the States and, yeah. go and go and use this opportunity that hospitality offers people to mm. go and travel the world and go and see as much as possible, take on different cultures and, and, and an understanding. And bigger than that, a different lifestyle. Yeah. And then from there, where did you move to? And then after that, I ended up um, coming back to the UK. And then uh, I ended up uh, being based in Bray. Uh, working with the Fat Duck group. So predominantly time spent at the Heinz Head um, yeah. and at the Fat Duck as well. And, you know, again, Heston Blumenthal and uh, that kind of modern... Uh, uh, like molecular cuisine, you know, that style of gastronomy was something that was very, you know, I think I was very passionate about. And something that, that scientific I really, the approach scientific to cooking. style, exactly. Yeah. So I felt that that was an opportunity of my career to really, um, again, just learn and soak in as much information as possible, you know? Do you think then growing up uh, and that influence that your mum had and teaching you to cook, that, that deeper understanding of how important the root and the foundation of what you're trying to create in a dish. Do you think that's been able to transpire into your thought processes and understanding where these different chefs cook from, although it's not Nigerian cuisine, but it has they're trying to cook something that's really passionate and soulful and is meaningful to them. And do you think you've been able to grab hold of that and tie into that and believe in it? Um, yeah, I believe so. I think as, you know, not just upon that, I think that you know, food doesn't have to be tied to just being British or, you know, Italian or French. You know, there can be cross cultures, you know, there can be cross techniques. And I and that's what I'd learned when I was spending my time there in San Francisco and uh, working under um, Chef Cherie and, uh, you know, applying French techniques to um, using American ingredients, uh, locally sourced ingredients and using Indian spices and flavors as well. That um, Like cross-pollination. Cross-pollination of, yeah, of it. It was just absolutely amazing. And then from there, that's where, you know, I think that then I, it took inspiration from that and, you know, working with he uh, the Heston Group and um, learning more the scientific style and those techniques. And that's kind of, you know, not a lot. I haven't forgot about where my roots have come from, you know, and I feel that it was always, I was always looking to kind of give back to my culture, my heritage, because it's not out there. It's not well known at the moment. Everybody can associate British food with fish and chips, yeah. Spanish food with paella, American food with burgers and chips and whatever. Um, <laughs> but um, no one really has that kind of association of what is West African cuisine or what's West African cooking. And there's a great opportunity at the minute, isn't there? Because more and more people are becoming more, I, I suppose, interested, just not 
from a consumer point of view, but I think from a chef recognition point of view, that we can understand and cross-pollinate and move dishes around and use different spices and techniques. And because food's become much more global and people have become more well-traveled, like yourself as a chef coming from the States and back here. And then obviously, you know, I know you then left the Fat Duck Group and went to work with a chef that I know very well over in Singapore. I did indeed, yeah. So spent about nine years based in Singapore and um, I was the chef Ryan Cliff's right-hand man at uh, the Tipling Club for about seven years. And um, this is... this. And is Ryan the- is a British chef <laughs> that's working out in Singapore yes. that, has, that uses modern technique and science and the understanding, very similar to that, I suppose, not a Heston mindset, but mm. that, that the understanding of the process of trying to create dishes that are exciting and vibrant. But Ryan operates with no rules, doesn't absolutely, he? Absolutely, absolutely, which allowed me to have that kind of freedom to be very creative. And um, again, being his right-hand man, it was kind of like us developing these dishes together and you know being at that part of the world I was exposed to a variety of ingredients that I'd never even come across you know so I think even now with my style today you know I I would employ and use a lot of Southeast Asian flavors and techniques and ingredients even from Japan as well and you know I got to really kind of see just an amazing array of uh, ingredients. So you've moved back from Singapore using with with a no holds barred style of cooking um, that you've kind of kept with you from learning from Ryan at the Tippling Club and that opportunity and that ability to cook and you've then taken on this role as executive chef at Coco. Now tell us about Coco. Yeah, so um, when I had left the UK, um, I felt that there wasn't going to, you know, there was nothing around at the time of West African food or even any style of African food on the fine dining set. So um, after traveling back and forth over the years and seeing more kind of uh, ethnic um, restaurants around in London, you know, it, you know, something triggered in my head that, you know, this could be possibly something that will grow and become popular. And I think people's palates have become more adv- adv- um, advanced and people are understanding and appreciating different flavors and uh, and cuisines. So I got approached to take over as the new chef of a Coco restaurant, which is a West African restaurant in central London in Fitzrovia. Um, a Coco, uh, actually, the direct translation for that means it's time. So I think that uh, that kind of fits part and parcel with my kind of career and journey as well as in its time. It's now to put West African food on the map. And for you to start making a name for yourself. Yeah, absolutely. That skill set, that understanding. I mean, you've got, I mean, that's incredible heritage in terms of um, chefs that you've worked with, the people that you've learned underneath and those, that training, that technique that you've got. And this is now is your opportunity or your time to be able to build in, I suppose, your Nigerian heritage into the skill set and the training that you've got and create dishes that are, I mean, a true representation of you and your personality. Mm, Absolutely. So I think that, you know, I've, I would kind of define my style of cooking now as being very bold, progressive, but, you know, allowing to um, use a lot of heat and spice and flavor. You know, we kind of at the restaurant have three very, um, uh, our trilogy of um, cooking there that we kind of apply to is the use of fire. Uh, umami and spice. And that's those are the three real integral parts of the cooking that we want to highlight with the food that we do there. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. At participating McDonald's. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? 
That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. At the UPS store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. Now, is that something that's close to your heart, or is that something that's very much in the way of Nigerian cookery? What are the, what what defines Nigerian food? What what makes it different? Because you mentioned the word spice and heat. There is that yeah. something. Is it known for hot food or uh, that? aromatic spicy it would be more again so we define ourselves more as west african than just nigerian so my nigerian side is definitely heat okay heat. and um but in terms of west africa you know you've got a variety of about 15 different countries that can follow the same style of cooking but use different spices you know the cooking west being, africa is so vast it's not it's just so like vast. it's not just like the west of england where exactly. it's like dorset and, and gloucestershire and yes. cornwall yeah. it's like you know it's huge isn't it's it it's huge absolutely so um i'm at a point of my career where i've learned so much over the years but i almost feel like i'm going back to school again and kind of learning you know a variety of these new and interesting indigenous spices from west africa um and again it opens my eyes to not just nigerian cooking but obviously ghanaian senegalese from Cameroon, from Gambia as well. So there's a vast variety of uh, um, stuff to play around with there, which is absolutely amazing. Okay, so you've got this huge playground of, of, of food. You want to create dishes that are not fine dining, but you want to leave them in the space that are, they are very, very special. You want these dishes to be taken from, I suppose, its, its root and going actually elevated into being something magic but talking about your favorite dish which is why we're here mm. i mean wh- what is your favorite dish and, and uh, uh what makes it so special what is it that makes it so special to you so my favorite dish that i'm here to talk about is jollof rice yeah jollof rice is um i wouldn't just say it's a dish it's a part of west african culture it's something that is owned by um every west african person that you would uh, you'd speak about would have jollof rice kind of as a they'll you know as the heart and soul of uh, what west african cuisine is so the history of jollof rice actually stems from the 13th century right uh, it does indeed so it is um uh, originally it came from uh, parts of senegal and gambia from the jollof tribe and i think that um over the years it's kind of uh, retained its um kind of retained its history and flavor in the, in the type of dish. But as it's uh, expanded and gone towards parts, you know, been used in uh, as a staple dish of Ghana and Nigeria. So are there different variants, variants that come yes. up and down the whole of West Africa? Is there, yes. is, so you could have jollof rice that, I mean, can be hundreds of, if not thousands of miles apart, mm. but you still recognize, but you, you recognize it as the base level dish of understanding of jollof. But can you tell the difference between Senegalese or Nigerian or... 
Absolutely. And um, we, you can do. And the base of the rice is the most important part of the cooking. So obviously, I grew up with a Nigerian palate and the Nigerian, uh, Nigerians would always say that theirs is the best because I think... Of course. <laughs> of course, as they do, we'll own it. But, um, you know, the Ghanaians do it in an amazing way. The Senegalese do it in an amazing way and the Cameroonians as well. But um, I would describe the dish as almost like a Nigerian biryani. It's a baked rice dish that contains a lot of spices, onions, and is cooked with either meat or fish. The base of the rice flavour is an integral part of the dish, which is a reduction of tomatoes, scotch bonnet chilli, onion, red bell peppers, and herbs and spices. So it's got that flavour mixture of the scotch bonnet spiciness coming through there, but the sweet red peppers that, you know, you've got this kind of balance. So you cook that out as kind of like a chunky kind of sauce stew Absolutely. to start with? Absolutely, stew to start with. So that's the base of the flavor. It's not, in Nigeria, it's known as a stew atta or an atta didin. And that's, that atta base is actually used in a variety of dishes. Right. So that's like kind a of, mother sauce. Like almost. a mother sauce, pretty okay. much. It's a, it's a West African mother sauce, yeah. And then what happens to that? So once you've got that mother sauce done, is that do you put the meat in there and you poach the meat in it? Do you cook that? Or do you fry that off first or the fish? Or? So with the with the meat component of the dish, it can either be done with fish or meat, but traditionally it's done with uh, meat. So normally it would be goat or beef or chicken. You would make a stock first, so the and uh, you know it's a very homely style stock where everything's thrown in: onions, bay leaf, bit of thyme, bit of curry powder, um, your meat, and it'll be normally a whole whole goat with uh, all the innards, lots of everything, 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 everything almost a one pot wonder. Okay. So one pot wonder. And you'd bring that up and create this beautiful, delicious uh, stock. You would strain off the stock, retain the liquid, and uh, that stock base is used to again cook the rice, while the meat is then re-added into the rice at the end once the rice is cooked. So once you've cooked all that meat in that stock, kind of like you've poached it, Jenny, pretty much. So if it's if it's a if it's a whole goat, you're cooking it for a long time. Pretty much, yeah. So so you then flake all the meat off the bone. No, I mean I think Again, um, with chicken, um, yes, it would be flaked through or kept whole, kept chunky. Uh, with the goat, uh, it would be fried. So just fried just to add a bit of texture as well and kind of retain some of the moisture so it doesn't dry out too much as well. Um, but yeah, that's kind of what would happen. Okay, so yeah. you've got the meat cooked, you've strained it, so you've got the stock yeah. and you've got your tomato base and with the scotch bonnets through it. it. And then what happens? What, where does the rice come in? So with the rice, traditionally it's used with a long grain rice or basmati rice. Um, and what we do is we would, um, at, you know, the Ghanaians would like to use a bit of ginger and garlic through there. Um, Nigerians traditionally love to cook with uh, palm oil, which is, uh, right. you know, an integral part of, um, of, of Nigerian cooking. It's in the base of a lot of sauces and stews over there. So you would toast the rice with the, with the, the oil. Um, at the restaurant, we just tend to use a beautiful grapeseed oil or, or olive oil uh, to toast the rice. And then we'd add in that um, tomato stew, uh, the stew atta that's added in. And then from there, we'll be covered with the stock. And then, then we'll just allow that to just slowly braise. Or so is it kind it, of like two parts liquid to one part rice? Is that much, kind yeah. of like a basic understanding just, of the recipe? Yes, okay. absolutely. Absolutely. And then, um, and then after like... Um, so once that's added together, that can either be just baked in the oven or, you know, in 
Nigeria and West Africa, this is traditionally done over clay pot. So right. in a clay pot. Yeah. So and it's cooked over wood fire. And again, that kind of the smokiness of from the wood kind of, you know, adds to the flavor of the dish. You know? So you so. just get and that clay pot, is it one of those uh, uh, kind of like an old Yorkshire pudding tin that you don't wash out properly, you just wipe it out. You just <laughs> keep all the flavors in it. Like Absolutely. It, that yeah. adds to it. Okay. That so, adds to it, yeah. So all of that environment, those are the things that give it, it it's quite hard to replicate in a sterile environment in a mm. restaurant or but you know, those are the sort of things that I remember once eating um, some tacos in a taco shack somewhere uh, uh, in Tucson in Arizona and it was just like this place I mean it was like it was unwashed it was like this place like the EHO would shut it down in this country immediately however the tacos were the most amazing flavorsome thing because it was the environment the way that it cooked on the the grill that it had been cooked on had layers it had history in it it had all of those sort of things that you can't ever replicate they're the sort of things that really create beautiful flavor so the idea of doing it in a clay pot cooking it over wood-fired stoves they're the sort of things that add another another layer of not just authenticity but actually taste and heart and soul Absolutely. And I think even for us at the restaurant, what we try and do is we try and keep as much of that authenticity there as possible, but add a little bit of refinement to the dish, you know. So um, currently at the restaurant, we serve ours with uh, lobster. So Uh we've got a beautiful uh, native blue lobster from Scotland. Um, And again, we would make a a beautiful uh, pressure cooked stock using um, oxtail and meat and chicken, you know, lots of beautiful meaty notes to it and then we actually poach the the shells sorry we poach the claws and then we add that and fold that through the rice and then we create um just a plated uh, lobster with uh, textures of carrot because traditionally it would either be eaten with carrots or aubergine in um in parts of west africa as well so we kind of you know take all those kind of authentic notes there and um even the way we present it at the restaurant is presented in all, in these beautiful small little clay pots that we've had uh, designed for the restaurant but then and lightly smoked as well but then at the same time just add some refinement notes to it as well so you're taking the understanding of that dish and what makes it so special that like mm. authenticity and then you know using your chef skill and, and knowledge and ability to be able to twist it up and change it and make it super special mm. what is it about this dish that makes it so special to you what is it that makes you go like this is the dish that it, you know I'm asking you what's your favourite dish what mm. is it that makes you go yes it's this it's this one because it's just identity it's, it, it's really is a staple of West African culture and it just goes part and part with what being Nigerian is all about. This is something that we, Nigerians own, not even just Nigerians, but Ghanaians, West Africans own this on our side. This is us. Jollof rice is a, is a really a part of our culture. When did you first try it? When did, when, what was your first memory of it? I'm sure like your, your mum was making it, but what, when does it suddenly become, you, you look back at it and go, yeah, this is, I remember this has been such a huge part of my heritage and background. I think, um, I wouldn't say, I couldn't put a timeline exactly on when, because it's just been part of my upbringing, part of my culture. I mean, I would eat this dish about easily twice, three times a week. It was always kind of done, um, you know, with a variety of different meats, either chicken or or fish or goat. I think for a celebratory occasion, it was definitely more on your high-end quality beef um, that would be used. Um, But I mean, maybe I can take you back to a story of my childhood where I went to Nigeria when I was the age of five or six. And, um, you know, um, I I got my eyes got open to um, something very interesting. You know, Um, my my, uh, parents come from a small little village uh, in the south of Nigeria. And um, to cook 
jollof rice wasn't about just cooking it for yourself. It was cooking for the for the whole village, for the neighbours. So I remember seeing a big clay pot for that can fit literally about 200 people's worth of uh, jollof rice in there. Amazing. And having the smells of, of that coming through was incredible. I also remember goats being slaughtered and uh, having to learn how to uh, <laughs> how to butcher a goat at the age of five, six years old. And then continuing on with those visits, I think as you grow up and mature and you realise, okay, this is, you know, this is it's not just about eating and enjoying with the family, it's about substance as well and making sure the whole animal was used. And um, again, like going back to that vision of uh, of of uh, <laughs> the butchery of the goat and stuff but it was it was very interesting to see you know the respect and love of how you know they had treated the treated the produce as well and treated the animal and treated the you know everything that went into it it was a very you know even though it's uh, the village isn't you know the nicest cleanest village in the world but it's still everything that went into the dish was uh, treated with respect there's so many know. great things about that story though that, that shows it's about it's about history and heritage it's about um uh, uh, i suppose from a chef's point of view you you you're seeing the the full process of an animal that's been loved cared for looked after but its purpose has been to then be slaughtered and mm. used and and every single bit of it being used you know so there's respect for the animal it's not just it's not just something that comes in a polystyrene you know backpack bag that you buy in a supermarket you know mm. that that is completely removed from you know everything that we eat meat wise it has at some point been a living animal you know oh. this is it and so the understanding of that but I think the biggest thing that I take from that story is the fact that it feeds 200 you know yes. there was a pot there of, so it was connecting communities and, and so uh, I mean one of the ones I was, questions I was going to ask you is when is it typically when is jollof rice typically eaten and you know is it celebratory is it and it feels like it's it's for everything it feels like you said you'd eat it two or three times a week but the meat varies depending on whether it's a celebratory dish or whether it's a, whether it's um just more of a like it's a tuesday night we're hungry this is what we're eating it's like or that sense of grabbing it for a community mm. now all of those ingredients sound amazing. You say that they swap out, but is there anything in that dish that is completely non-negotiable? It's in every single time. Every single time is definitely the stew atta. So those the 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 red pale pepper, the the onion, the scotch bonnet. Um, these are all very important parts of this dish, and this is the part that kind of it. Even though it sounds as easy as it is, it needs to be treated with love and respect because again, like this is something that needs to be you know uh, cooked down in a slow period of time. Reduced down to beautiful um, uh, paste, almost to kind of add into the base of the rice. Pretty much it. Yeah, no, I, mean, I love it. Yeah, the yeah. fact that there is, that is it. They, you know, there there is no twist mm. and there's no swerve on it. Even now, for the I mean, for the twists and the swerves that you put and the variations that you put for the restaurant, a, a twist on the classic. You're still making the stewata. Absolutely, absolutely. It's, and is it the same one that you learned from your mum, or is it one that you've adapted? It's definitely one that I've adapted, and I think it's one that I'm not going to say is authentically Nigerian. It does have you know um, a few different spices as well that takes from Ghanaian influence and from Cameroonian influence as well. So. But that that's the non-negotiable. So the other things mm. you put you're talking about putting native blue lobsters in from from the UK or using you know you're making the stock using oxtail and whatever. Those are all your kind of the next layer things, the thing that make you separate you from being just a, a great home cook to being a great chef. The point mm. that you're looking at each individual factor and twisting it and changing it and growing it. 
What about the dish? Is there any kind of like myths or, or, or misconceptions around it? Is there anything that, you know, for somebody who doesn't understand it, we just assume that it's just like biryani rice flavor. What, 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 are there any misconceptions you need to dispel from it? I think it's just more the case of um, the misconception would be that it's West African. There's not the Guyanaians, the best, the Nigerians, the best. We should just all own it as <coughs> our dish. And okay. I think that, you know, especially coming back to the UK, you do see that, kind of see that little bit of rivalry, you know, between, you know, the Ghanaians and Nigerians about who owns it as their dish. But I think it should just be a collective of, you know what, this is our dish. And so. celebrate it. And celebrate it. Absolutely. Amazing. Sunday lunch. What does Sunday lunch look like in your house? Are you going out and celebrating? Are you eating? Are you cooking for yourself? I mean, what, yeah. What's Sunday lunch? Sunday lunch for me, um, no. Unfortunately, you know, I, 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 I can get out of the house. I do like to get out and explore, meet people, catch up with friends and family. And, you know, kind of enjoy what the, you know, the new uh, eateries are around in London. Um, you know, I love a good proper British British lunch so I went to Fallow recently then that was absolutely great. delicious yeah really, great really proper solid um, Sunday roast lunch but again like I've been in Southeast Asia for nine years so I've got a real big palate when it comes to Asian food and uh, my wife being Singaporean Chinese you know um, Chinese food is just in incredible for me so I love you know Chinese flavours Malay flavours as well so even if I was to cook at home I'd you know in my pantry today you'd still see stuff like uh, I've got about four or five different varieties of soy sauce sesame oil palm sugar uh, cooking wines here there whatever so one of my favourite dishes that you know is uh, not even one of my favourite dishes but my wife's favourite dish is uh, brinjal, which is uh, eggplant or aubergine, as we like to call it over here. Yeah. And it's just sautéed with minced pork, chilli, onion and 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 love. And it's absolutely delicious. I've got some quick fire questions for you coming up. One of them is going to be what's always in your fridge, but it sounds like a, an, a, an, a, a variety and array of soy sauces. Soy sauces pretty much, yeah. What about music? Do you listen to music when you cook? Absolutely. Um, I'm just a man born with rhythm. So <laughs> I feel that uh, music is very important in my <laughs> life. Um, I think now coming back to the UK I've, and I'm um, working at a Coco, I've definitely immersed myself to more Afrobeats music. But, you know, I've, you know, my love has always been like old school hip hop, R&B. Um, but, you know, I can listen to anything and everything. So the I appreciate club, music in general. In the Tibbling Club with Singapore, Ryan was a big uh, supporter of music massive, uh, uh, and massive. would have it on in the kitchen all the time, would have it on the restaurant. The, the playlists were always really, really good. Is that something that you embrace in the kitchens during service? Will you still have music on during we service? We do have music on in service at the in the restaurant at Coco, but it's, it is more tailored towards Africa. West African style music. So that kind of, you know, you know, it's fun, funky, um, Afro beats, a little bit of um, kind of soul music as well. So I think with the style of the venue that we have, it is a bit more intimate. It's a bit, you know, it's a, you know, we say fine dining restaurant. So, you know, that's the style of music that we have. But um, yes, uh, Compared to Tippling Club, the Tippling Club's uh, was definitely a bit more of an interesting playlist. We had it, we, we had it full on. It was almost like a, you could get to parts of the meal where it turned into almost a rave. Than a, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? amazing. Yeah, brilliant. We had a great playlist there. Yeah. And what about eating out? I mean, you mentioned you get out and you you went to Fallow the other week, which was fantastic for Sunday lunch. What about a cheap eat? Where do you go and grab something cheap to eat? A restaurant? Was it a pub or a market space somewhere in London? Well, I've definitely been denied of kebabs for the last nine years. So I've been eating literally every kebab shop. <laughs> 
shop in Brixton in the South London. So I love that. But um, to be honest, like I've there was one that I went to recently, FAs. I think there's a few around London, and they do an amazing kebab because I used to, you know, for me, just I'll get the beautiful lamb kofta with salad and chili sauce, you know, try and avoid the carbs as yeah. much as possible. But you know, and it's just meat and vegetables, but you know, it's cooked with love again as well. And you get, you know, when it's cooked over the they cook it over the coals as well. It's a great, you know, get some nice flavor from that. That wood flavor and yeah. coal flavor you get is fantastic. Although I've got to be honest, I'm asking you about cheap meat, cheap eats, and you've just come, you know, from nine years in Singapore, possibly the greatest place to get the most amazing, eclectic mix of street food, whether it's Singaporean, Chinese style, whether it's mm. Indonesian influence or Indian influence or like dosas or whatever it is that like Singapore, like uh, asking you what you what your best cheap eat is and you're coming up with a kebab. I'm like, I was waiting for you to go a flight back to Singapore <laughs> and then tell me how many different hawker stores you could eat at. I mean, they're amazing. Okay, what's been your biggest cooking disaster? Have you cooked something authentic for your mum and she's gone, this isn't authentic? Have you cooked something for Ryan and he's looked at you and gone, what is this? What Have you done a live cookery demonstration and it's been a nightmare? Um, oh, good. It could be just maybe in services and, you know, previously in my career, you know, when you mess up or something. So I remember um, we had a big event on in one of my old restaurants and um, we were, you know, butter poaching these lobsters and I decided for some reason to put it on a sh whatever I did put it somewhere that shouldn't have been and I, it just spilt everywhere and pretty much caused a mini fire in the middle of service and it was about 50 lobsters that had to go in the bin so no. but now I've learned how to cook a lobster very well and yeah, treat yeah. it with respect was it, was it taken out of your wages? <laughs> <laughs> wasn't taken out of my wages but I was given a stern stern warning that you know you're on your last, last, yeah, last. Yeah, thing. Don't ever do don't that do again. This again. So, yeah. What about food that you've never tried but you'd like to? Is there anything you think? Yeah, I'd love to have or go somewhere. No, I think I've. Oh, that's a hard question. I've pretty much tried. I feel I've pretty much tried everything. Is there um, anything you wouldn't try? Would you put mm -hmm. if anything's put in front of you and you go, now this is something you you'd eat? Even it. I think to this day, even still, durian is one of those ones. It's a <laughs> for me personally, inedible fruit, but it's actually regarded as a delicacy in uh, in Southeast Asia. You know, it's actually um, I just can't eat uh, durian. Yeah, I've yeah. done the durian fruit, and yeah. do you know I've tried it. I think probably five or six times now, and every time I think, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, go, I am gonna like this. I'm gonna give it because everyone's like, and I just, I'm like you, I just can't, I just can't get it. Mm. It's, it's, and there's nothing the, the smell of it in Singapore when it's so hot and they're in season and it's like 2 a.m. and there's just like this kind of like green cloud of the smell that just floats through the streets. It's just a... a it's horrendous. I mean, I'm sure a lot of people don't even realise it's actually banned in all like public transport. Um, you know, it's... it's Hotels. It's, it, hotels, what have you. It's planes, like It's... Like, um, yeah, it's something that you have to really like... Yeah, to be honest, yeah. Like, yeah. Or pretend you like Pretend you like Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, all right then, last question. What makes you optimistic for the future? Family. Family. I like, you know, having a, a seek in the future with, you know, my wife, kids, and, you know, training and nurturing the future generation. All about food. Oh, and food. And food? And food as well, yeah. I yeah, love food. and food. You <laughs> love food. I love food, yeah. You love food. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the fact that seeing food being able to grow, seeing the way that, um, we're, we're getting much more of a, uh, a diverse 
eclectic outlook into the restaurant scene and the food scene, particularly in the UK, where I think, you know, London is one of the most embracive of different food cultures and different food styles from all over the world with a, with a, a you know, there's, eight million people that live in this city that look at going out to eat and hopefully that can spread out more up and down the country and back into Dorset. Mm. Be amazing, eh? It would be, wouldn't it? Yeah, it would be amazing. It would be More amazing. Than just fish and chips. Yeah, Let's get some not, jollof rice down yes. on this on the sunny seaside. We'll try that. Well, I listen. Thank you ever so much. It's been an absolute pleasure to chat to you today, and I can't wait to hear your recipe for jollof rice. And guys, thanks for listening. Don't forget, you can listen to the bonus cook along recipe. For more details, see bbcgoodfood.com forward slash podcast. Thanks ever so much. See you later.